0: Dr. Cindy Lankenau has an alternative medicine exclusive practice in Colden, New York. She received her DVM from Cornell University in 1981. She was certified in veterinary acupuncture by IVIS in 1992, in animal chiropractic by the American Veterinary Chiropractic Association in 1994, and in veterinary homeopathy by the Academy of Veterinary Homeopathy in 1997. Dr. Lankenau has extensive training in veterinary herbology. She has studied Chinese herbal medicine with Ivis, the Qi Institute, and the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. She has studied Western herbal medicine with Rosemary Gladstar at Sage Mountain, and also with CIVT. She is recognized as a registered professional herbalist by the American Herbal Guild. She has worked in private practice as a dairy practitioner, served as a veterinary officer in the Peace Corps, in mixed animal private practice, and now practices exclusively alternative medicine in her own practice. She has lectured nationally as well as internationally and is a CIVT faculty member as well. She has served her profession as a board member and president of the Veterinary Botanical Medical Association, the committee head of the Complementary and Alternative Medicine Subcommittee for the New York State Veterinary Society, She's a founder and board member of the New York Complementary and Alternative Medicine Association, a board member of the World Association of Traditional Chinese Veterinary Medicine, and she served as the Secretary-Treasurer of the American College of Veterinary Botanical Medicine. In this conversation, we discuss growing up on a dairy farm, being a female large animal veterinarian, how stubborn cases led her in the direction of holistic medicine, and how she works with her state veterinary association to promote complementary and alternative medicine. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Cindy Lankanow. Dr. Lankenau, thanks for joining me today.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Cindy, were you born in upstate New York?
1: I was born in the Hudson Valley on a dairy farm in a small town called Kudzaki, and my dad had a 30-ish cow dairy of Jersey, Cross, Holsteins, um, great little farm that we grew up on.
0: I bet it was a good place to grow up.
1: Yeah, it was.
0: So is the farm still in operation?
1: Um, they still raise heifers. My dad sold out in the late 70s. Well, actually, no, the early 70s. Um, the fam- the death of the family farm was happening already, and uh, my dad couldn't take the stress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that was even before the big buyout then in, in the 80s.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we went out early. and But the people that bought the farm still milked for a while, and now they still raise heifers, even though they can't support themselves. Oh, sure. Yeah.
0: Uh, So was vet school always something you were interested in?
1: Well, it was sort of my, both my grandmother and my father were very much education stressed. You're nothing unless you have a profession. So that was drilled in our mind from childhood on. And the only thing I liked to be was around animals. So it it was what I thought I'd always want to do. But at the time, women were never allowed to be vets or very few but I guess I was stubborn, and I just persisted and didn't take any negativity as a deterrent. And, um, yeah, it was really the only profession I was interested in.
0: Um, Cornell or Ithaca must have been a beautiful place to go to school.
1: Yeah, yeah. I went to undergrad at Cornell and also in vet school. A beautiful town. I just wish I was so – I was a pretty um, – intense student. I studied all the time, so I never really enjoyed very much of Ithaca, but it was a wonderful place to go to school.
0: I saw that you got in, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got in after three years of undergrad. Yes.
1: Yep, I did. So
0: so you were working studying all the time.
1: Yeah, I was. Um, But, you know, it was sort of, that was my goal. And I, I, had to do you know I think when you're really focused on something and studying and getting the best grades you can and doing the best work you can was always instilled in me so
0: do you, do you think um, you were an agriculture major yeah yeah mm-hmm. do you would you do would you do that again or would you consider something more liberal arts as a way of just rounding out your education
1: well you know that it was I went when I went to school it was still supporting family farms. And, and I really am so glad I stopped doing dairy work when I did because the corporate farming and these huge 500,000 head dairies, I can't handle. I love family farm work. So no, I don't think I could be an ag major now. Not the way that agriculture is all geared for corporate agriculture. It would be more environmental studies that I'd be gravitating towards, I think, today.
0: Sure. So, how big was your class in vet school?
1: We had 80 people in my class. How many women? Well, we were the first class they led in. We had, I think, 25% women in my class. Wow. Yeah.
0: And did you enter vet school with the idea of being doing a large animal?
1: Yeah. You know, I was completely, um, you know, my dad, you're, you're nothing unless you're a vet out there at 3 in the morning with a collapse and the calving. And if I had done anything else than dairy work, when I got out of vet school, I would have been a severe disappointment to him. So yeah, dairy was what I wanted to do.
0: (laughs) And I mean, to that end, you had probably had a ton of experience as opposed to your classmates and just how to handle some of that stuff, those emergencies.
1: Well, you know, we were still at the time and I think I'm the same age group as you that a lot of my classmates still came from small dairies, so we we still in New York State is a large dairy state, so we had a lot of kids that still were from small farms, still had a lot of dairy experience. It was more the oddity having someone in the class that was just a small animal person. So no, at that time we were very dairy oriented class. Yeah.
0: And the school had a had a dairy emphasis. Wouldn't you say at the oh, time? Oh
1: yeah, 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 and and I think still does, but you know, again, it shifted more to corporate uh, medicine, and it's they're finding it very difficult to find veterinarians that want to do that kind of work now.
0: Oh sure. Um, so when did the idea of doing any sort of holistic work come in?
1: Well, that's interesting. You know, back I'll never forget watching that first special when. Uh, Nixon opened up China and Bill Moyers went over there. And I'll never forget watching this woman. She was wide awake with someone operating using electrical acupuncture for anesthesia so she could be conscious when they were removing her brain tumor. And I'm like, oh, I want to learn how to do this. I mean, it was amazing. And so that stuck with me throughout vet school. And then I'll never forget when I was at a I did an externship on the Navajo reservation and there was the septic foal that was going to die. You know, there was no way anything was going to save that foal and the owners were very apologetic and they asked if they could have their shaman come and, you know, the Navajo really are wonderful people, but everybody's equal and, and whoops. And they were odd in that they, they brought their foal to us first and not to the local medicine person. So, you know, we kind of patted them on the head and said, oh, sure, yeah, go right ahead. And this guy came, and I'm expecting, you know, all this amazing stuff to happen, and he's just standing drumming. And I'm, like, waiting and waiting. And after around three hours, I'm like, well, this is born." So I went to bed. And in the morning when I got there, the foal was 100% normal. And, you know, I, I think my chin hit the ground, and the shaman was so kind he just said your medicine never could have removed the evil from the fold. and i'm looking at him you know in this like what and he said the family was cursed because they thought they were above everyone else and so this was a lesson to them that they can't lose their traditional roots and and i'm just looking at him just dumbfounded but that just crashed open my system of reality of wow he cured this fall by banging on a drum. How can you do that? And so I think the, the, the questioning, the, the not just trusting drug use, not just trusting our paradigm of thinking in Western medicine was completely crashed open by that. And then I was in Peace Corps for a while, and you see just amazing things, realizing that our conventional medicine is just a small sliver of possibilities and luckily, by then, things were starting to open up. So acupuncture training was available and chiropractic training was available. So, yeah, I think there was always that niggle of there's more out there. And then life brings those experiences that just open up the possibilities to you.
0: That's amazing. So when you were in school, was the, did you have any exposure at Cornell to anything alternative or holistic?
1: Well, really holistic was like Dr. Fox. He was our dairy instructor and, and it's all preventative. So like our on our exam, he'd have a picture of a season and he'd say, okay, uh, you just got a call to this farm. What are you expecting? You know, so that seasonal, so springtime, okay, you're thinking of bloat, big red maple tree. Oh, we're thinking of red maple stuff. So it was that dairy basis of looking at everything trying to prevent things, trying to look at the housing, at the nutrition, at the care. Uh, that's really the holistic basis that we've had was from those good old, you know, James Harriet kind of veterinarians that were still teaching when I went to vet school. There was absolutely no uh, talking about acupuncture or, you know, herbs. We had poisonous plants, but never, you'd never treat with a plant. But I think it was that foundation of just good veterinarian care, of preventative, of looking at everything. That was the holistic base. I don't know if they still teach that at school anymore, though. I mean, Dr. Fox was a, a jewel, a rough-cut diamond um, that taught there.
0: Oh, it sounds like it. So, graduation, you went into a dairy practice.
1: I did. I did. For four years, I worked up in Bloomville, New York, myself and one other wonderful veterinarian, very meticulous, even though I, I, he just bought an x-ray machine, a little handheld one, to have some kind of a, a lure to bring in another vet. But it was basically hands-on, you know, you figure it out. You don't trust, you don't rely on lab work. You don't rely on anything else except your common sense and your physical exam. So a great way to start working that you had to think. You had to think
0: um, you're a rarity being a, a female veterinarian at that time in large animal how did the clients accept you up there
1: oh it was really funny um, very skeptical but my boss was very much you have to take whoever one of us comes so he wasn't gonna let people play a favorites thing and um, one of the one of my first calls it was a uterine torsion at a local you know well-respected farmer and you know, so I'm not strong enough to just flip a calf, so I do the whole bar, bar uh, board on the belly and roll the cow over. And so you know it was a family affair, everyone was there, and the cervix wasn't dilated, so while we were waiting, I did some pregnancy checks, and then cervix had dilated enough. We pulled the calf, calf was live, everyone was happy. and so this is like the third day I was working there. And by the time I'd gotten home, showered, and gone to the supermarket, everyone in town knew about it. It was so cute. So I <laughs> I, I made the acceptance. I, I pulled this calf. Everyone was impressed that I did it. And, and so then, you know, there were a couple other farmers. Like one old guy, he had um, a uterine prolapse, which, you know, was impossible to do on your own. And um, he wasn't going to help me. You know, so she was down, and I got her legs kind of – you know, so I could tip the pelvis a little bit and just, you know, how much work they are. And I was just about done and her tail came untied and she splattered my head and I just had manure just dripping everywhere. But, you know, there's no way I could let go of that uterus. Got things in and then he loved me. I was his most favorite person after that because I had shown that I would persevere despite manure dripping everywhere. So you know, then everyone started to like me because I showed that I wasn't a wuss and I would work. Um, But then the irony of when I left the practice, everyone, most of the farmers would say, well, we really liked you, you know, we really thought you were taking the job from a guy, but you know, we see that, that, you know, you knew your stuff and blah, blah, blah. But then on the other side, they'd say, but, really what's wrong with you? Why, why aren't you married and having kids? You know, so there's still is that dichotomy of, I have proved myself as a veterinarian, I was accepted, but then they still were like, but what really is wrong with you? So it was, it was pretty funny.
0: Oh, that is. Um, I have stories like that from colleagues that are of similar age to us. And it's just, I mean, you guys were trailblazers in large animal. And, and I think, you know, you, just that effort that you guys put in paved the way for for women in large animal practice for you you know all the way to, to today.
1: Yeah, and I think I think just because and this don't take it as a negative sexist thing, but I think women are much more maybe motivated by caring and compassion more to a, a degree than some guys are more driven by financial responsibility and economic gain. And, and that's a horrible generalization, but I just see that sometimes happening. And and maybe because I just love to work and I just love, you know, we were paid on salary and whether I worked, I mean, we worked amazing hours. Um, but I think the farmers appreciate that because they don't work on a time basis and they just appreciate people that care and just will put in the time and effort.
0: Oh, you bet. So what led you to the Peace Corps then?
1: Well, frankly, you know, after four years of dairy work, I realized a monkey could do what I did. You know, I'd have all these wonderful diagnoses, just incredible theories, but my treatment options were you know, you pump her rumen, you give her calcium and dextrose, plus or minus penicillin. I mean, unless it was a DA and a surgery. But my, my treatment modalities were so limited. And I just wanted to do more that I got frustrated. So I wanted something to wake up my life or wake up my, you know, just um, shake me to the core. So I did, I joined the Peace Corps and it did. It's a Great reality check for us.
0: Yeah. So, let me see. Were you there for how long? For a year?
1: Well, actually, I got um, um, uninvited by the dictator's mistress. I offended her. Um, So, I I left after a year um, under really rapid circumstances. Um, Stubborn Americans don't do well in a dictatorial country, which maybe today people might want to realize that. But... Um, it was a silly uh, American impatience that I offended her. And you don't offend the dictator's mistress and live to tell about it. So, Miss Peace Corps got me out of the country. But on the way back, my oldest sister was living in Kenya. So, I stopped in Kenya and got to do some work for the Kenyan SPCA. Oh, that was so much fun. And um, stayed there for a couple of months and then came back to the States. And then came out to Middleport, New York, which is a mixed animal practice. Still, There were still some small dairies, but, you know, here I'd been in the primary dairy practice, then in Peace Corps where they had donkeys but no horses, and I was hired to be their equine expert. So um, that was a whole other thing. The first day that I worked in Middleport, I was supposed to collect – well, I did. I collected the stallion that was syndicated for $2 million. You know, so I had to say, oh, just a second as I quick ran home and pulled out my old theorigenology book to figure out how the heck I'm supposed to do this. So, <laughs> so so, I shifted years quite rapidly and then became mostly an equine vet out here and still did a lot of dairy work. But again, it was the one of the other vets in the practice, um, wonderful guy who actually just passed on. But he did all the big, the big, big farms. So I still got to do the little tiny farms, which, you know, is where I love. And then more and more small animal. We had to do one small animal day in the practice just so we'd know everything, where everything was in the practice if there was a small animal emergency when we were on call. So got back doing a little bit of everything. I got back.
0: So what What led you to strike out on your own then?
1: Well, actually, it was um, one of my horse clients. She had a very, very crippled Arab, and she wanted to breed her but we couldn't keep her pregnant because she had to be on so many anti-inflammatory drugs. So I'm like, oh, and then she knows Steve Dill, and I know Steve Dill. He was an intern when I was a student at Cornell, and he was the nearest veterinarian acupuncturist down where he is in West Virginia, I think. So for a mere $4,000, Arlene flew Steve up a couple of times to acupuncture mirror, and I went out the first time he needled her, and I'm thinking, Well, I can do this and I can do it a heck of a lot cheaper just for the fact that she had to fly him up, had to pay him for three days of his work, and then fly him back home. Um, And that led me to take IVIS in 1991. I took the IVIS class out in San Diego, and that just opened up that whole other world. Um, So it was basically clients that have led me on. So then I was doing acupuncture working at this um, mixed animal practice in Middleport, and the partners didn't think I was charging enough, so they didn't want me to do acupuncture on their time. So they let me set up my own acupuncture business while I was still working for them and talk about a perfect way to make a transition. So I still had my income from being a quote-unquote conventional vet as I was building up my acupuncture business until I got so busy on my day off that I Asked to work part time, but the practice said no, full time, no, or no time. So I went on my own, but because I couldn't compete with them, I had to make alternative medicine work. So I couldn't rely on drugs, I couldn't rely on conventional stuff. So then came that very rapid exponential. You know, I took my homeopathic training with Dr. Pitcairn. Then I took the first IVIS herbal class, and then Dr. Shea's herbal class, and then CIVT's herbal class, both their Western and the Chinese, and, you know, Dr. Pitcairn's basic class and his advanced class. Oh my gosh. You know, and then, oh, and then Rosemary Gladstar's Western herbal class, and then Michael Thiers' Western herbal class. So then this incredible. Um, I had to learn how to do as much as possible because I was sort of stubborn and I didn't want to have to refer people to conventional treatment if they came to me for alternative treatment. So I felt I had to make it work. And then the clients kind of guided me. So at the time I was doing a lot of standard bed work down at the track, a lot of racehorse work and a lot of um hunter-jumper work and one of my clients had a hunter-jumper that was in a trailer accident and he was physically crooked. So acupuncture, I could keep him sound for two weeks, but I never could, you know, it was just palliation. I could help him. I could help him. He could be drug-free so he could show, but we never could get him to the point that I, that he was cured. So because of him, I took my chiropractic class because he was a chiropractic animal. So, you know, the animals have kind of forced me to keep learning more and more because I'll, you know, get that set of cases kind of with that modality. But then somebody else has this different thing that I need to learn something else to help treat that. So it's a continually learning, you know, you know you, it nev- never ends.
0: You Yeah, yeah. You were traveling a lot then for, for classes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because everything was... There was no online. I don't even know if I had a computer until, oh, my goodness. Long, I mean, it was all you had to go. You had to study. Everything was in person. And, yeah.
0: Was uh, was uh, options in Hillsdale when you went?
1: Um, I learned when Sharon Willoughby was still teaching. I think yeah. just before she went up to Alaska. At that time, she was being attacked by the chiropractors, I think. And, um, so it was kind of a sad time for her, but it was wonderful because she was, she was still teaching. I don't even know if they called it options then. Um, it was when it was at her place, um, in Illinois or wherever it was.
0: Yeah. Cause I was just, I was there a few years after you and it was, it was in Hillsdale, Illinois. And so that was really just prior to her, to her leaving for Alaska. Yeah. Um, yeah. So did you, because of your non-compete, did you have to relocate?
1: No, I didn't. I could stay right where I was because I wasn't using any modality that they, they had no interest in alternative medicine. They had no, you know, I was just this little, I turned into this little flaky person and they didn't care what I did. So it was my same client base really. And And I just did my thing in the conventional practice, was completely happy about it because I took care of all the cases that they had nothing to offer. So I was sort of their garbage pail. You know, when they couldn't handle anything, when it was nothing they could do, they'd send them over to me. So it really worked well, I thought. And then eventually where I lived, it was way, way too many chemicals. It was a lot of farming, a lot of crop farming where I lived. The year they had cabbage across the road from me was just, oh my goodness, my husband was going to die. I mean, the, the stuff they dump on those uh, crops are horrible. So then we moved down south um, into a relatively non-toxic environment, I guess.
0: And how long have you been there?
1: Uh, 20, wait, we moved down here in 99, so 21 years now.
0: Yeah. So wh- is it close enough that your those clients that you had were able to, you were able to keep?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I lived, I used to live like a half an hour north of Buffalo and now I'm half an hour, 35 minutes south of Buffalo.
0: Got it. And how's the, how's the topography there where you are right now compared to where you grew up?
1: Yeah. Um, well, kind of similar. I mean, where, where I grew up, it was Hud, it, the Hudson Valley and then rolling hills, and then we're right on the foothills put- of the Catskills. So, you know, you can't beat the Catskills for neat places to explore. Where I live now, we're on the tip end of Lake Erie. So we get all the lake effect snows, which are rather interesting. And, uh, but rolling hills, no big mountains, but, you know, it's still rolling. We have some hills.
0: So was, was there something about herbs that really drew your interest?
1: Well, you know, as a kid, I used to, you know, you're a bored farm kid. So what do you do? You watch the animals all the time. And I used to love to watch how cows would, how their tongues could just like take one plant out of a group. And, and I'd always wonder, well, why did you want to eat that one and not the other ones? And so then, you know, I'd pick different plants and see which ones they'd want. And it's like, but it's just the different grass. Why well, won't you eat this? But they'd want that one. It, it would fascinate me and how horses can eat around something and then just leave one plant that they don't want to eat. It, it really is fascinating. So I always was intrigued by it. And then, you know, in vet school, they make you afraid of everything. But I still, I'd argue with it like, well, wait a minute, how come my horse that coughs will eat three mouthfuls of coughs of cold spot? That's all, that's all he'll eat. He won't eat gallons of it and his cough will go away. So it made you kind of say, I think these animals know more than what we know. So when actually Eeyore Basco gave our only herbal introduction, when I took my Ivis class, he gave an evening lecture on herbs. And it just fascinated me like You know, these beings, these incredible energetic things are everywhere. Why aren't we using, you know, I mean, it it just that whole question of why are we synthesizing drugs that have so many toxic side effects and are expensive when we could just be using what's in our backyard? So I think that innate, like bored farm girl, kind of has always been in me, and it just is fascinating using herbs.
0: So what's your um, your practice set up now? You're, you're doing farm calls. You've seen small animal patients at all. What, what's it like?
1: Yeah, I kind of have a 50-50 swing now. Um, I do two days in the office with small animals because what was happening on farm calls, people would want you to look at their cat or their dog and, you know, I'm crawling around on concrete barn floor and i'm like uh, i don't really like and i'd never have what i wanted for the small animals in my large animal truck so i live in a really nice quiet rural area and i turned my mudroom into a exam room i mean it's small but i don't need anything i have an exam room a small waiting area the garage is used for herb storage and um so two days a week, people come into the office. That way I can see more people, and I don't have to try to drive around in downtown Buffalo. I, uh, um, And then Tuesdays is my swing day. So I do, if I have more large animal calls, I'll do in my large animal emergencies, or it's open for small animal emergencies on Tuesday. And then on uh, Thursday and Friday, I do my large animal calls. And most of them... You know, I'm not available for like emergency collets or emergency calvings because I, oh gosh, I've got like a three hour radius around my practice, except for the lakes that you can't drive out there. But I go all the way down to the Pennsylvania border. Um, I go just a little east of Rochester, north up to the lake, west out to the lake. Uh, It's a huge area. So normally, what I do on my large animal days, I'll have an area. Most of them were horses now, but go out to big barns, you know, either chiropractic or dressage barns, hunter-jumper, during the show season. And then I have a huge clientele of these old, poor horses that either are arthritic or chronic Lyme or chronic uh, pituitary, cushion kind of horses. And I have some small animal or some small ruminants, goats and sheep, a couple of organic dairy farms. But, you know, I'm there mostly like seasonal shifts. So what we'll do is I use more homotoxicology for them, just the cost even of Western herbs sometimes. It's a little pricey, and everyone's worried about milk withholding because we really haven't done the studies to prove how long you have to hold the milk for especially some of the berberine-containing herbs. So a lot of that's homotoxicology and seasonal changes, trying to anticipate um, feed changes and mineral needs. I have one camel client. I have one ostrich client. I have one pig farmer. I think that's about it.
0: Wow. So what kind of vehicle do you drive?
1: I have a Subaru Baja.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, a classic.
1: It is, it is. And my, my husband made a little cap for it, and it's just perfect. So I have a couple of shelves of herbs, a couple of one shelf of homeopathics, um, and then a little kit I carry with my acupuncture needles and my moxa. So it's mostly just oh, that, carrying herbs, yeah.
0: That sounds perfect. It hey, is. Before, before we go, I want to talk about your involvement with your state. Association. Um, You've worked with them for a while. You coordinate uh, integrated medicine at the state level. Tell, Tell me what you do with them.
1: Yeah, well, this is really exciting. So way, way back, I don't know if you remember, there was an attack on homeopathy and there was a push to try to make it illegal. And luckily, the state president at the time, Linda Tyndall, was a classmate of mine, and she invited me to come to speak on behalf of alternative medicine. And she created a liaison between alternative medicine and uh, their state. So I was officially a liaison. But luckily, New York State did not, ended up changing their mind. Originally, they were going to support the ban of homeopathy, and they changed their mind. Luckily, for, because Linda had me come and basically we pointed out, if you ban homeopathy, what really do veterinarians do that are truly scientifically proven? Really not that much. But anyways, um, so that was the start. And then in the state, uh, we just have some amazing people. So the past president and the current president are very supportive of alternative medicine. Our current president. Um, President uh, Andy Fleming is actually certified in acupuncture, and our our executive director is just incredible, very supportive. So what we've done, we have, well, our first integrative conference is this. Uh, it was postponed from COVID, so we're still trying. We're probably going to have to have a, a um virtual conference, but we have every other month, we have a webinar that's free to New York State members. And uh, we have our conference, we have a very open committee now of incorporating in integrative medicine. So that's from the official state. But before the official state, I tend to get, um, oh, I don't know, um, annoyed. And I was annoyed at continuing education that Everything seems to be just based on race, um, what's race certified. And so I wasn't feeling that some of our education options were being met by some of our alternative meetings. So we started our own New York State Complementary and Alternative Veterinary Medical Association, where we bring one speaker in a year, well, sometimes it's been two a year, to do a short, intensive class on a extraordinary topic. So we've had Jeffrey Ewan come. We had, um, Laura Taylor come down to do an osteopathic uh, thing. We had David Winston come for like a mini eco tour for their usually three and a half days. We had Ari Sorensen come. We had Terry Durkies come. Oh, we've had, oh, um, Oh, we had somebody from California, and I can't believe I'm his mind's name slipping my mind. But anyway, we've had some amazing people come. So most of them aren't race certified. The hours usually Ivis helps us out. We have Ivis certification, um, so people get some continuing education from it. But it's great, you know. We get these extraordinary speakers come every year, and we're still waiting for Linda Bogie to come. Again, COVID Uh, postpone, postpone. So hopefully in October, she'll be able to fly over. And since New York right now is doing good as of now, hopefully in October, she'll be able to make it and we'll be able to have our advanced acupuncture seminar.
0: Well, she's worth the wait. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we have two things on the state, Our, our local holistic sub organization, but then the official veterinarian group is really Embracing alternative medicine right now is quite quite amazing. I'm very proud of them.
0: Well, Cindy, I think this is a good place to stop. We're gonna we're on we're gonna leave off a whole bunch of stuff that you're involved in with organized medicine. Um, I'll just say that I really want to thank you. Um, you've been such an inspiration. I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, all the things you've done for our little corner of veterinary medicine, I, I can't thank you enough because um of all of your efforts.
1: Oh, you're so welcome and thank you for everything that you do.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me.
1: You're welcome.
0: All right. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.